Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Hello and welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman. I'm here today with Elliot Faber, joining me from Hong Kong. Elliot was born in Canada, but has been living in Hong Kong for over a decade now, where he's helped launch a number of businesses and has been highly influential in introducing Japanese beverage alcohol to the Hong Kong market. He originally moved to Hong Kong to start Yardbird with a childhood friend, and that is now a legendary izakaya. That group has opened a number of other restaurants. But he's not just been in hospitality. He's actually started Sunday's Distribution, which is a importer and distributor of world alcohols in Hong Kong. And most recently, he started Sunday's Spirits, which is actually an alcohol brand. They have their own sake, coffee shochu, and whiskey. It's really a pleasure to have Elliot on the show today. I guess to wrap up some of his other accomplishments, he wrote the book, Sake, The History, Stories, and Craft of Japan's Artisanal Breweries. It's an absolutely gorgeous uh, book if you can find it. And he was named a Sake Samurai by the Japan Sake Brewers Association back in 2016. As you'll hear from this interview, it seems like he just never stops. He's always got something new going on. So it's, again, my pleasure to have Elliot Faber here on the show. Thank you very much for joining. I'm stoked to be here. It's the closest I've been to Japan in over two years. Before the pandemic, you spent a lot of time here. Is that right? Every four to six weeks. Yeah, I was coming out for something. And uh, it's it's been surreal to, to not spend as much time in Japan as I used to. But uh, glad to know that the people there are still pushing on and and there's so much great activity. So yeah, it's it's really cool to be on here today talking to you. Great. Well, uh, happy to have you for sure. I believe you're Canadian. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Born in Toronto and grew up in Calgary. Okay. And how did you end up in Hong Kong? What was that transition like? Yeah. So um, I was just a normal Canadian prairie boy that, uh, you know, Started out born in Toronto, grew up in Calgary, um, and uh, my family moved when I was six to Calgary. And I was drinking beer underage, playing ice hockey, um, very standard Canadian, uh, very standard Canadian stuff. But as I was growing up, I had a real affinity, and my whole family really just started to really embrace Japanese culture. Um, it started with the obvious video games. An anime, and we had an exchange student come stay with us from Japan. My brother is an artist. Um, I mean, he's much more than an artist now, but he he was always sketching different like anime inspired work, doing great collections of of anime, and so all this kind of just helped us tap into a little bit of an understanding of Japanese pop culture. Then we started to get into Japanese food, and uh, of course, I had a Japanese girlfriend one point or another point in my life. But I, that's probably very cliche for a podcast like this. But I have to say that uh, when I was in university, I started to get into food and beverage more deeply. And I 
was getting a real interest in wine. And so upon finishing university, I studied to become a sommelier. And when it came time for me to kind of make a move out of Calgary in 2011, I went to Hong Kong to help my childhood friend open up his izakaya Yardbird. And I was coming in, uh, had no experience working in Hong Kong, but was instantly blown away at the access to not only sake, but wine, basically anything under 30% alcohol in Hong Kong, you pay zero duty and there's no clearance, you know, at, at the border. So you could, I could ask you to send me a bottle of sake, you know, by air and it would arrive tomorrow right to my door. Probably still cold if we're lucky. Luckily for us, the restaurant started to take off and gain popularity. And, you know, for me, the rest is history in my sake career because the busier the restaurant got, the more suppliers were showing up, the more people were just appearing from Japan, sake makers, writers, sake enthusiasts, just fueled my passion to learn more about sake, study more sake. And from that love for sake followed a deep passion for Japanese spirits from Awamori and shochu to Japanese whiskey. And I guess that's like the meat of why we're here today. You know, I'm, 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 I'm well aware, you know, I get away on the sake tip though, because I can talk about Aruten, right? And then we're talking about spirits a little bit. Sure, sure. So I can, I can cheat if, if I have to. Actually, like to tell the story properly, I should say that I first left Canada in the summer right after high school finished. I had had a job while I was in the last semester of high school and I had a bit of money and there was this guy who was friends with my boss at the clothing store I was working at. And he was like a few years older than me. He was like a, a male model. He was always surrounded by beautiful girls. He was Australian. He was just like the coolest dude that I knew at that time. And we were becoming friends. And he said, you know, why don't you come and work with me in Scotland at the Hilton? I'll never forget his words in a true Australian kind of fashion. He was like, it's not all puppies and ice cream, but you'll make some money. You'll see a different part of the world and you'll make friends that last a lifetime. I went out to work at the Hilton Craig and Derek. Um, it's in, in Ballater. Royal Loch Nagar is the closest uh, Scotch whiskey distillery to there. And uh, it was incredible. And I just got this taste for uh, wanting to travel and see more of the world. So I came back and a funny coincidence was that this Hilton was literally ranked worst Hilton in the world at the time. <laughs> um, it was a resort, but it was, it was part of a chain called Stackus that Hilton Hotels had just purchased. And it was the worst Stackus. And so by right, it's, this became the worst Hilton in the world. And for some reason, the Sheraton Hotel in Calgary was ranked best Starwood Hotel in the world for like three years in a row. So I would go to university, live in my parents' basement, I would work two jobs, one in the hotel bar and the other in another restaurant or in a clothing store or whatever. And then in the summertime, I would go work at this Hilton. So best Sheraton in the world and worst Hilton in the world in a year. That's kind of how I really got my interest in travel and hospitality. The next year, my 20th birthday was already the second year of me going back to the, that Hilton hotel. And I spent my 20th birthday in Thailand uh, in a monastery the thing that struck my soul and my heart the most was just that awareness of watching how food and drink changed everywhere I went. I 
was sharing vodka out of a nondescript uh, hip flask with like this old man in a train in Russia at one point. And I was drinking like some random spirit that gypsies made in Hungary. And like, it just like, it went on and on. I, it's so crazy to just talk about it. But like, like I say, food and drink brings us all together. We made two really important decisions with the beverage program at Yardbird. And the first one was to make the sake list as big as the wine list. So people could respect the versatility and diversity of sake next to wine. And the other thing that we wanted to do was to, first of all, have an entire shochu section. And second of all, only pour Japanese whiskey. So this is back at a time where, you know, you could still find Japanese whiskey and the price was reasonable, but we were using Takatsuru uh, 12 year for our old fashions, for example. Hmm. We would go through cases and cases of Takatsuru 12. And now I've got like three bottles left, or I should say Ronin has three bottles left. And, you know, and we have to charge like a hundred US dollars a shot because after these bottles are gone, it's over. We're not trying to rip anybody off, but like Takatsuru 12 was iconic. You know, it was sure. an incredible whiskey. And if you compare that to like the pure malt NAS now, like to me, there's, there's no competition, you know, and it was cheaper than the pure malt is today. You know? Right. Right. Like, no, the just, pricing so crazy. changed so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, so you got into hospitality, it sounds like at the end of high school, going and working at the Hilton in, in Scotland, you came back, you were working at the Sheraton in Calgary while you were in school. And you said you ended up working in the bar. So what were you doing working at the Sheraton bar while you were in college? It was a combination of uh, studying, I mean, applying my sommelier studies, because I was really into wine at that time, to doing basic barback service. And eventually I did take over the bar and was running the bar and, and developing the cocktail menus there. And uh, before I moved, I had actually stopped working at that hotel and I ended up running Canada's only all Italian wine store. If I were to be comprised of two countries, it would be Italy and Japan. Yeah, you know, I don't know which parts are which. Sometimes my stomach is, is Italy um, and sometimes it's Japan. But like, I really believe in, in Japan and Italy kind of like having a lot in common. So I was able to convince the owners of that all Italian wine store to let me sell sake in the shop. So we had like all Italian wine and a small sake selection. It's interesting you say that about Italy and Japan, because I feel like their culinary traditions are surprisingly similar, despite being worlds apart as far as flavor. I want to write a book on it. It would be a fa fascinating read. I mean, it's, it's simple, fresh seasonal ingredients made well, right? Yeah. That, to me, that describes both of those culinary traditions. So that's, that's really cool that you're able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so cool to hear you say that. And like, I know with your experience and, and, you know, kind of your understanding of, of Japanese food culture, let alone the rest of the world, like, you know, I think that it's a very stark similarity, you know, like they really share a lot. Hey, look, like for me, the best pizza in the world is in Okinawa. And like <laughs> every Italian who wants to call me out, if they go to Okinawa, they're like, please, right. So you, you moved to Hong Kong to open Yardbird. What's the original concept and what did it evolve into? Because today it's a world famous restaurant. You, you may not realize that because you're in Hong Kong, but I heard about it in New York. I heard about it in Japan. People talk about Yardbird. There's a book, right? Yardbird is a, is a big <laughs> deal. So uh, how, where, where did it start and, and what did it evolve into? Yardbird was just friends 
getting together and just trying to make good drinks and, and cook good food. Matt is a genius and his partner, Lindsay, is brilliant at building a brand. There's a number of other people who were so instrumental in building Yardbird and making it what it is today. But first of all, you have Matt Abergel, who is the most brilliant chef I know. Um, Lindsay Jang, his partner, brilliant at building a brand and raising awareness. Raphael Holzer, who makes a product called Fernet Hunter, which I got to say should be one of your podcasts because Fernet Hunter is made in Austria, but he does have a special edition that calls on Hokkaido lavender. So it might be enough of a stretch that you'd allow it on your show. And uh, Tara Babins is uh, Matt's sister. She was running all the comms, communications. Kenneth Chan came on as, a, as another manager and Stacey Jang basically was running all the books. And so like you just have all these people that have limited experience in doing all of these things on their own. We just all got together and just started doing it and figuring it out. Stacey, her background in running a business from the back end, from an office perspective, was limited. She had to learn so much. For me, like running a program of this scale and magnitude, I just was forced into it. We were there 14 hours a day. We would show up at around 11 or 12, and we would leave at 2 or 4 in the morning. We'd go out and party. And we would then just go to bed and wake up and do it all. The only day we ever had off was Sundays. We worked six days a week and Sundays were sacred, but they were sacred days that we would all spend together every weekend. So we would spend all day, we would fight. There'd be problems with like inventory, money, like not balancing, like all the stuff that goes along with a new busy growing restaurant. And we'd be tired, we'd be hungover, we'd then be drunk and we'd party. And then right when we're too exhausted to do anything, we would just show up at the same restaurant on a Sunday afternoon and we'd all get together and hang out and just do more damage to our livers, basically. But it was really special time. And I think that is where a lot of the magic was. It, it was a true family restaurant. You could have people popping in and out in Hong Kong, like such a hub, you know? And it's really flattering to hear like about how well received Yardbird is, you know, around in different parts of the world because people were like just dropping in. People would just come in for a day and they'd have a layover and they'd come to Yardbird and we'd hang out and and we would literally take them out like to our favorite bars. There's like a hip hop bar called Racks. We would go to Racks. We would take them there and have highballs after Yardbird and or they'd stay with us and we'd just drink in the restaurant till like 4 a.m. Like really like in a sense wholesome with the regard that we were just building something and having fun and not planning for tomorrow, really. So what was the next step in, in Elliot Faber's hospitality journey? Well, the Yardbird uh, story definitely continues. I mean, my last day at Yardbird was October 31st of 2020. I made it just like nine and a half years. And, and you know, we still do a lot of stuff together. Obviously, we're partners in Sundays. I've done like just random stuff uh, with Yardbird. And so that never goes away. But in 2013, Yardbird had definitely become profitable at that point. The restaurant was really successful at getting awareness. And Matt decided to open his kind of dream seafood focused restaurant. And he wanted it to be a whiskey bar. And that's when Ronin was founded. Matt said to me, he said, go and buy all the Japanese whiskey you can. 
And I said, well, I'm like, well, like, what's my budget? And he just said, just, just start shopping. So a couple of months passed by and I present him this list of all the stuff I've bought, like hundreds and hundreds of bottles. And then he said, you can stop shopping. (laughs) So, I mean, we still have bottles, Um, you know, but it was a good investment because it disappeared or got obscenely expensive. So I actually wrote tasting notes for all of the whiskeys and the format I wanted to do to write these tasting notes, I was going to do three words for nose, three words for palate, three words for finish. But it had to be fun because it's there was over a hundred bottles and it needed to just be interesting and engaging. So some of the the words that I use for my tasting notes are are kind of out there. And as an American, you might be able to get most of them, but definitely like people in Hong Kong were like, "What the hell's a Jolly Rancher?" or or something <laughs> like that. You know, like they really just didn't know. But it was a really it was really fun. And uh, and the last thing I just want to touch on is that. Around that time, the same time Ronan was opening, just before then, I had really started to be going out in Japan. And Matt and I in particular had a few really special experiences. And one of them just involves him and I being very irresponsible gaijin, standing outside of Sunkus with a bottle of Kakubin whiskey and a bunch of bottles of like the nicest soda water they had in there. And that really cool packed pre-packed ice in a cup that could only be sold in Japan. I mean, there's nowhere else in the world that would sell a plastic cup full of ice. I mean, you can buy plastic cups and you can buy ice, but who is going to sell you a plastic cup with ice already in it? Of course, only the Japanese. Every convenience store in Japan has that available, basically. But you're right. That's a It's a very unique cultural touchstone. The scene is Nakameguro. We're just chilling outside all like until like 4 a.m. just drinking and hanging out. And, you know, then like we went home, we went back to Hong Kong and I said, I need to make a highball menu. So by 2012, we had a menu that was dedicated to highballs. I think that was probably pretty ahead of its time for Hong Kong. We would use different whiskeys, uh, different sodas, different garnish. And, you know, the garnish was made to highlight a characteristic of the whiskey. So one of my favorites um, that we we did was the Kirin 50% alcohol. It's uh, called the Fujigotamba. Mm-hmm. Fujigotemba. Yep. They make it now, like they stopped and they make it again now, right? I think. Mm-hmm. They do. Yep. So we would do that with like a burnt lime peel. And it would just like somehow bring out this zesty, almost savory citrus component out of the whiskey. And then you go back and you would taste it neat and you'd be like, I can see it. I get it. So we would play around Suntory uh, Akafuda, red label with mm-hmm. grapefruit peel and uh, and like just, just doing a bunch of stuff. And then eventually we diversified. We put a chu high on there. We do some like like gin and, and yuzu soda, stuff like that. But yeah, like building a highball menu was really important for us. Can you construct for me your perfect highball? Like, let me hear your, yeah. your recipe. Like, what's, what's, how does that work? My perfect highball involves me catching the next flight out of here, landing at Haneda, getting straight to Ginza and going to Apollo Bar. Apollo Bar is the most special highball experience in the world. What makes it special? First of all, you start, and it's actually funny this question because um, I was consulting for the win in Las Vegas. I gave a whole lecture to them about building the perfect highball. 
they were looking at me like it's a rum and coke i'm like no <laughs> first no, it's, it's a whiskey soda second of all let's talk about the soda let's talk about the whiskey let's talk about the glass the ice and everything the perfect highball involves really thin glass like kimura glass and then the ice the ice of course is extremely important we want to make sure that it is going to be crystal clear the shape of the ice is up to people's preferences i like a kind of a long spear but if you go to apollo bar hidenori-san he will kind of carve the edges off and then he does the most special thing he fans the ice he kind of lets it sit there i didn't set the scene but you're in a dark bar that's playing the same album on repeat tom white's and as soon as you order your drink a light just shines directly on him this spotlight the album is playing he takes out the glass he takes out the ice he shaves down the edges he starts fanning the ice why does he fan the ice he's bringing the ice to temperature so when you pour your frozen whiskey on top of the ice you're less likely to crack the ice and you're going to leave it crystal clear and completely transparent so he fans the ice he puts in the frozen whiskey hakushu in my case hakushu 12 year then he puts in the spear that's been fanned and then i am skipping a couple steps but he's going to go to his soda machine that he has rigged on his own to create the perfect balance of pressure amount of bubbles minerality he puts it in a beaker he carefully pours the soda down the side of the glass so it doesn't hit the ice and just kind of hugs the side of the glass and then most important of all of that is the lift because if i see another bartender stir their highball i don't know what i'm going to do the guy lifts and you ask why do you lift the ice and he says well it's very straightforward the ice when i drop it back down is going to displace the spirit and it's going to go straight in and infuse to the entire drink and sure enough he's totally right you pick up the glass and like because the glass is so thin and the ice is so thick and heavy you have this sensation where you're almost gripping the ice itself you know mm. it's the strangest feeling and it's and it's it's also cold and like i can feel that like that feeling is one of my favorite feelings in the world and you just lift it to your lips and it's just like the best highball ever i have one sip and i order my second highball because it takes them like 10 minutes to make one right but sure, it's so sure. worth it it's so <laughs> worth it so you, yeah, yeah and it just you just kind of carry on through the night like that i think you've you've just you've encapsulated perfectly what's so beautiful about the japanese Highball. I mean that the, yeah. there's nothing like it when it's well made like that. It's a really, really exquisite drink. W once you got to Hong Kong and you began to build out the drinks menu, you were you talked about how you you know your goal was to have as much sake as as wine. You built out a nice Japanese whiskey list. How did shochu and awamori begin to to show up uh, at Yardbird and then Ronin and then with what you've been working on since? Well, uh, shochu was always a part of the plan for the menu at Yardbird. I was really interested in finding really weird stuff. I mean, and this is weird for Hong Kong. So like, I'm sure you probably find this at your local shop um, in Japan, but like getting my hands on like gold sesame shochu, black sesame shochu, pumpkin, ginger shochu, 
this is all really cool for me. I was really interested in that. So I'd always have like as many exotic flavors. There was one chestnut shochu that they don't make anymore. I forget who made it. It was it was more like Genshu kind of strength and it tasted like a Mont Blanc, like a chestnut cream pastry. It was just shochu made with chestnuts. Like it was so cool. But the biggest seller at Yardbird for shochu and mainly because we drank it like Gatorade was uh, Tan Takatan Mizuwari. So, you know, we would just get really good ice and we'd get a good highball glass and we'd basically pretty much 50-50 water and shochu and then garnish with a shiso leaf. And we would just like clap the leaf, let the oils out and we just place it in the glass and the aromas, it's like Tan Takatan on steroids. Like all you have to do is put a shiso leaf in your Tan Takatan and it's a different category of beverage. Hmm. We really drank a lot. And then, and then Chuhai with um, Sengetsu Kome Shochu and just fresh squeezed grapefruit. We would just squeeze the grapefruit juice for the customer. And uh, you don't need to add sugar. You don't need to add anything. Now, tell me about this coffee shochu. I've seen coffee shochu in Japan. Uh, coffee awamori is quite popular in Okinawa. But what is this Sunday's coffee shochu all about? We started to make our own umeshu. We were really having fun with that. And then we were starting to be like, okay, well, like now we know the principles of how to make umeshu. So let's make our own like strawberry whiskey. So we would take whiskey and put strawberries. And that was like, that was okay, but we didn't like to mess with whiskey too much. But we did get this idea to make coffee shochu. We took beans. We've worked with everyone from Stumptown in the US to now we're working with Beyond Coffee, which is a super tiny roastery that's like the size of my bedroom. And it's in Kobe. And he's roasting like, it's like 10 kilos at a time. It's like tiny amounts of beans. And so we were making our coffee shochu in Hong Kong. And we were getting to a point where we couldn't make it fast enough. So I asked one of my friends, uh, who's one of my breweries that I work with a lot, Tsubosaka. Um, They're not far from the roasters. My colleague, Raf, Raphael, he went to the brewery to show them how we make coffee shochu. And now to this day, our coffee shochu is made by Tsubosaka. I set them up with uh, Masuda-san from Sengetsu. So they are selling shochu to my friend at the sake brewery. The guy roasts the beans. He sends them to the sake brewery. And then the guy at the brewery gets the sugar. And it's a lot better with him making it because he can measure pigment and ABV and all in sweetness and like all sorts of stuff. So he can make like a much more consistent product than us. But yeah, coffee shochu from Sundays is now made in Japan. And it all started with us just messing around in Hong Kong. I think that's a great transition to the fact that you're now in the alcohol business beyond uh, hospitality. You've, you've started, I guess, Sunday Spirits, which is also a distribution company. Is that right? So you have your own brands, but you also distribute other alcohols. So we started Sunday's distribution along the way. We also decided that we would do our own uh, alcohol company. So Sunday Spirits and Sunday's Distro are actually two different companies. Um, okay. Sunday's Distribution uh, imports wine and spirits from around the world, a portfolio that I curate with uh, with my colleagues, um, and everything from like Andre Mac wines from Portland, from from uh, Oregon, um, to like really cool stuff from Australia, and of course a ton of sake. Um, and, uh, and other spirits from around the world. And then, uh, and then Sunday spirits 
is a business that we have where we make alcohol with partners in Japan and we sell to seven different countries around the world. You're a busy man. <laughs> and, yeah. And during all of this, you had time to write a book, which is an absolutely incredible, a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I've got a copy of it here. And you, you explained to me before we started recording, this is a first edition that I have, and you now have a, a new edition out. Is that correct? Yeah, there's version 1.5. Um, and uh, the long story short of what happened with the book was I was just outside of Yardbird one day. And uh, there's a guy I had known. He'd been in the restaurants a couple of times. He was the head of a publishing house called Gatehouse. He was at a, a book fair in Germany. And they were at like kind of some fancy dinner that all the heads of the publishing houses all get together and sit at a round table. The subject of sake somehow came up. He started talking about Yardbird and these guys who were kind of his peers, but I guess they're all competitive. They were like, oh, you should write a sake book. And then he's like, and they kind of laugh. The head of the publishing, he's from Arkansas, you know, like he, he kind of looks like halfway between you and me, like, you know, like to give you an idea of this guy, right? So like... He's this guy from Arkansas, head of a publishing house living in Singapore. And he's like, these guys are making fun of me. He's like, I'm going to make a sake book, you know? And he was determined. And so he came back. He was back in Singapore. He called me and he said, hey, Elliot, he said, you know, like I, I've been to Yardbird a few times and I want to make a book about sake. And I want to know if you could give me some ideas on who I should talk to and what kind of things do you think should be in the book? And I said, well, you know, thanks for thinking of me. If you're going to make a sake book, make sure you talk to this guy and this guy. Make sure you cover this. You do this. For example, if we're making a book about sake, we must include a section of Awamori and we must include a section of shochu because it's, it's just imperative. In order to, to really tell the story of Japanese alcohol, we have to cover it all. And so we, we went and we talked back and forth. And then he said, you know, thanks a lot for your time. And he called me back the next day and he's like, this is your book. He said, you know, you put it together, you can choose the photographer, you choose the breweries, you can go ahead. And they, they basically commissioned me to put it all together. We were a team of five. There was an art director, my co-author, Hayato Hishinuma, who I think you know, or you may have met him before. He's a huge uh, shochu advocate. It's kind of his side hustle, though. He's in, I believe he's in IT as like his main job. <laughs> Hishinuma-san, the art director, and the head of publishing, and then the photographer, Jason Lang, who's amazing. I built this itinerary for the five of us to go to 75 breweries and distilleries in 19 days. That's one nine. So that's like hectic. We started in Okinawa and we went all the way to Hokkaido. It took me like a good like two months to build the itinerary out. We only had one conference call with all of us on the phone. I was like explaining to them everything that we were doing and they were kind of like half listening because they'd already seen the documentation, they kind of all laughed and unanimously said, you know, as long as we get to drink sake on this trip, you know, we don't care, you know, what happens. <laughs> and I said, guys, don't worry, sake will be the least of your concerns while you're on this trip, because it was exhausting. You know, we would go to like four or five breweries a day spanning multiple prefectures. The way I had set up the, the tour was that kind of like out of these 19 days, I kind of chose my favorite it's not fair to say my favorite, but the breweries that I had the strongest relationships with were always the last breweries of the day. Mm -hmm. We would visit a brewery that I, ha I had, had a great relationship with and they would take us for dinner. We would laugh. We would stay up all night. We'd go to karaoke. We'd do like all sorts of stuff. And we'd be up at like 4 a.m. the next morning to catch a train. 
it was really, really tiring and really hard. But I pushed forward and I knew we had to get it done. The whole process from start to finish took about two years. We sold 5,500 copies in roughly two more years. I think what, what we're learning from this interview more than anything is that you don't sleep because I thought yeah. I was busy. <laughs> I thought I had a lot it's of my been a plate. Few years. <laughs> that must have been a brutal trip for, for the whole crew to, to visit 75 places oh, in yeah. 10 days, but also a hugely memorable experience, right? Just to have those stories. The book really is a wonderful piece of work and you should be very proud of it for sure. But the publishing house closed. So how were you able to keep the book alive? I then said, you know what? I'm so proud of this book and they're not going to do anything with it. I want this book. Uh, this is my book. I spent approximately five years trying to figure out, A, will they sell me the rights? And B, once they agree on it, how do I find that price? Or how do I set a price and how do I negotiate with them? And one thing led to another. And uh, last year, the second half of the year, I got the rights after about five years. Luckily, I have an incredible publishing partner here, very good friends. And they worked with me to get the book republished as fast as possible. So I can try and get those rights paid off. And I can then plan to do a lot of exciting things around the book, supplementary content, digital editions, working with the photography to do some stuff with that, multiple languages. This book is just a foundation for something much bigger that I want to build. And now I'm finally on the road to realizing that dream. And hopefully I can take a lot of great contributors and sake breweries with me and give good exposure. So with Sunday's Whiskey, how did that get started? You didn't have a spirits company at the time, right? You were really just testing things out. Is that right? Yeah. So we made stuff for our restaurants and then we started to sell it to our friends in a retail format. And then we started to ship a little bit here and there to countries. Um, but really there was nothing formal. The real Sunday Spirits, as you know it today, came to be in 2019. The whiskey that, that we have at this point is version number four. Before that, we originally started with single cask, 5.5 year sherry cask that I selected from Akashi Distillery in Hyogo Prefecture. I was really after them for a couple of things. Number one was I was adamant like to call it 5.5 years and they were like, why would you want to do that? And I, I just like somehow convinced them to let me do that. I was like obsessed with working with Akashi because I thought it was the coolest fact that they had a license to distill before Suntory. And nobody knows who Akashi is, especially back then. Like nobody knew like their history and their their role in the whiskey world. So we were able to do that first. The second release was a seven-year single cask that is part of that collaboration called Aracide. I believe Akashi Distillery was involved in that, um, but it, there was a lot of trading going on. So the exact party's responsible. Even to this day, I'm not 100% sure because of how the whole selection process went, but I was presented by a trader um, with different casks. And, uh, and the cask that I chose was this cask that was maturing in Scotland and uh, was to be bottled by Duncan Taylor. And I'll never forget me basically forcing them to bottle it at cask strength. They really didn't want to, but I said, this product is made in Japan and why would I cut it with your water? I want to get your like your air, you know, I want to get the wind and the the aging, the diurnal temperatures. I want to get all that for my story about this whiskey, but I don't want you to like, you know, add your water to 
my water. And I really had to argue with them. So we did about 300 something bottles of that. And they all came to Hong Kong. There's a few bottles left for all you who happen to be in Hong Kong, but not much. <laughs> and then we did our first larger batch whiskey, which was inspired by the Nika Black Clear, because that was kind of our go-to whiskey for highballs. Bottled at 37%, it was something that we were crushing and really just mostly selling here in Hong Kong as well. When we did finally get to that point in 2019, when Sunday Spirits was going to be a properly uh, established and funded business, the US was our target market. And through our research, we discovered we couldn't ship a 37% alcohol whiskey and still call it whiskey. We would have had to call it whiskey liqueur. And we didn't want to take any chances. So um, I was able to work with Yamaguchi-san at Sasunokawa Shuzo to reformulate Sunday's whiskey. And I'm even more proud of it today in its current form than, uh, than our original version. That's great. Now, with the second cask, the seven-year-old in Scotland, is that, that was the second one? Is that right? You said Akeshi? So the distillery in Hokkaido? Is that right? Rather than Akashi. Yeah, so uh, Akashi um, was the first one. Then there was something that went on with a trading company in Hong Kong and Akeshi Distillery. And Akeshi had purchased some casks, but I don't know if it's the same people who are involved today. So like, I, I don't want to speak too much on exactly how I bought it and who the seller was. Also because it was, it was sensitive, even the labeling. Even though it was very clear and everybody knows it came from Chichibu and it actually did have a percentage of Hanyu in it, it was something that we could talk about. Like, I'm not in trouble for talking about this right now, but it was something that we had to be very careful about how we labeled it. And a really strange story is that last year, somebody from Japan wrote my partner to say I needed to change the wording on our website about that whiskey, but all of the words that I used were approved by somebody back then, somebody different than who had contacted us. I don't know the story with that sale and that purchase, but I would give it all back just for the chance to work directly with Akito-san. Yeah, just to clarify, because Akashi and Akeshi sound very similar to a lot of people. Yeah, so exactly. To make sure that you were working, you've worked with both of those. That's that's a very interesting yeah. origin for Sunday's whiskey. And now you've got your stable supplier, and you can move forward. And it's great that you're in the U.S. Uh, um, hopefully, our listeners in the U.S. will be able to track it down. Part of our our main plan was to sell Sunday's whiskey in the U.S. That was going to be our target market, and we were going to travel from Hong Kong to the U.S. to promote our whiskey work with our great network of, of chefs and bartenders in the community that we've been lucky enough to make friends with at Yardbird. And we were going to pump Sunday's whiskey to the US. Of course, that didn't happen because we never went back to the US after, after we started to finally ship our whiskey to the US. But I got to hand it to Monica and Vine Connections. They have been so patient and so professional and supportive of Sunday's whiskey. And we're really proud to have them as our import partner and all the great distributors that they work with all throughout the, the U.S. I was able to try Sunday's Whiskey last summer at Bar Convent Brooklyn. It's a really pleasant drink. You did a nice job. So a little bit of a tough question maybe, but is it completely made, matured, and bottled in Japan? No, and it's not a tough question at all because I think I was aware of what was going on in, in the scene much before it became any sort of controversy. I knew it was the term Japanese whiskey was very vague. And in all fairness, 
if I'm talking to you right now and we're just having a conversation, I'm still going to refer to Sunday's whiskey as a Japanese whiskey because, like, if I don't call it Japanese whiskey, I'm going to call it a world whiskey. I should rephrase that, like, talking to you, I say world whiskey, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if it's a customer in my bar or if it's just a quick conversation, the words Japanese whiskey do like slip out still. Sure, sure. Um, but let's talk about that. What does it mean to be Japanese whiskey? Well, first of all, I do agree, especially watching what has happened in the market and the community, that it is misleading to put Japanese whiskey on your label if it is not, in fact, authentically Japanese. But it is still a product of Japan and it is the craftsmanship of Yamaguchi san and the water of Koryama, like, you know, like water in Fukushima. Although people talk about Fukushima for the other reasons, right? Also, some of the most cult sake releases come out of Fukushima, and a large testament to that is their water source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And water, we know, plays an integral role in in our sake and in our spirits. I didn't want to call it Japanese whiskey on the label because even though there was no drama at the time, I didn't feel that it really told the whole story. And in fact, my inspiration for version four of Sunday's whiskey was the uh, white label malton grain from Ichiro. A great inspiration. So Ichiro's malton grain was like, yeah, I mean, I love him. I love what he does. And you look at the back of the bottle and it's a globe Mm -hmm. or it's a map of the world. And he wasn't hiding from it. So before it was even a conversation of whether it was kosher or not to call your whiskey Japanese or not, I was already inspired by the fact that Akuto-san was proudly stating that his whiskey was a world whiskey, that it came from other places. I mean, is anybody going to say like Ichiro's malton grain, even he says world whiskey on the bottle, like you still associate it with Japanese whiskey culture. Why? Because of his work. That's right. His manipulation of his materials and his ingredients. So it might not be fair to call it Japanese whiskey, but it is a Japanese product for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Because you couldn't make it somewhere else. So that's why on the label of Sunday's Whiskey, it says made in Japan Mm -hmm. and not Japanese whiskey. Um, And that's something that we've been doing before the drama. Makes perfect sense. And and to Akuto's credit, it really is his transparency. I think that's been, that's why everybody respects him. That's why people don't worry about what Ichido puts out because he tells you where it's from. Absolutely. I think where the controversy really came is from the distilleries that were bulk importing scotch and marking it up for tourists and making it look like, you know, the labels almost look identical to Yamazaki labels and that sort of thing. And we won't name yes. it we've done it before, but that's that's where things really went sideways. It, <laughs> where did this 18-year-old whiskey like suddenly appear out of nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. No, it's it it it, it, it kind of had to happen, I guess, mm-hmm. one, at one point or another, because it was just the the market was getting totally crazy. Let's shift gears before we get into too much trouble. Have you started to look into food pairings with Shochu and Awamori? A little project came across our table from a guy called Jun Ogawa, who had uh, a project called Ryukyu fourteen twenty nine, and Ryukyu fourteen twenty nine is all about celebrating Awamori. I should tell you that I love Awamori. One of my highballs that has been on the highball menu at Yardbird since I wrote the book was the Danball, which is just with Kamimura, Danryu, Awamori, fresh lime juice, soda, done. It's like the super amazing, like the way this, the acid, the citric acid in the Awamori plays with the lime, the acid in the lime. And then you almost get like really big flavors of the lime that really come out and 
It's refreshing and delicious. So I love Awamori. Um, Okinawa is where some of my favorite restaurants are. It's where my wife's parents and my parents met for the first time. It's where I spent New Year's, my first New Year's with my wife. And it's the first place I went when I wrote my book. It's a very sentimental place uh, for me. And so when I met June and found out about Riku 1429, and I knew I wasn't going anywhere, I just said, it's time to open an Okinawa izakaya in Hong Kong so we can teach people about awamori. I have a little joint called Awa Awa, and Awa Awa is on a really interesting and disputed street in Hong Kong called Peel Street. We have like, you know, 50 to 60 awamori that you can come and try anytime, all different types. We have imuge, we have black sugar liqueurs, we've got korkor rum, we've got like everything that I can get my hands on that's from Okinawa in terms of booze. We make the best taco rice outside of Japan for sure. And yeah, it's a wicked spot. And so yeah, so I really think that Japanese spirits are important. And Awamori is really special. And we just finished Taste Wars 2022. It was a, a really exciting competition where we got a bunch of bars to come and present a cocktail working with Awamori. Everyone from Koa, which is the number one bar in Asia, Asia's 50 best bars. And they're an agave bar, but we got them on board. We got PDT. We got uh, the Aubrey, which is in the Mandarin Oriental. We got like small, cool boutique bars like Yushiki, of course, Yardbird. Lots of people getting involved. I did 11 classes at 11 different bars all over Hong Kong, just teaching them about Awamori. And they get a really great cash prize, which right now in times of COVID, the guys need. Tell me a little bit about the experience with Awamori at Taste Wars. I'm curious about that. A little, a little thing like this, it's a chance to do Taste Wars and show Awamori to a huge audience, have bars that never touch anything Japanese, creating original Awamori cocktails. Like, that's pretty cool. And they put Mezcal, the one I mentioned, the bar, Koa, you know, they're an agave bar and they're mixing Mezcal and Awamori together to make their cocktail. Another person was putting beetroot and Awamori together. Another person aged infused umibudo sea grapes into their awamori. There's so much cool shit that people are doing. And we just have to give people a bit of education and opportunity on how to work with these spirits. And then they can do amazing things. That's really fantastic. I mean, as you were describing those different things that people were doing with awamori, you know, whether it's split base with mezcal, uh, the sea grapes, it's immediately taste sensations are hitting my Hitting my sensory, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. my taste memories is going, alarm bells are going off and it all sounds really, really cool. This has really been fantastic. Really appreciate your time. I'm sure we're going to have you on the show again. And we really, really appreciate everything that you've been doing in Hong Kong and all over the world for Japanese spirits. So thank you so much. And everyone, this was Elliot Faber uh, from many, many places, but I guess we'll say from Sunday Spirits, <laughs> which is how we started this show. And so again, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, I just want to say a big thank you to you as well. You know, like one thing that I think I said at the beginning before we we went on was just like me wanting to get out and chat with people a bit more. But you guys have been doing this for so much longer on this medium of podcasts. And I think it's just amazing to help give a voice to all the people that are working hard in the in the community. So to you and Chris, I definitely salute you. And, and one final big kiss to Matt Abergel and Lindsay Jang, who are my partners in Sunday Spirits. I mean, my whole life changed because I moved to help them open their little izakaya. And now like 10 years later, we have so much stuff to talk about. And it's really because of them, their family and love to my wife, Tiffany Faber.
and we're having a baby. Oh, congratulations. And then that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's big news. Well, come, come yeah, find yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> that. Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, thank you, Elliot. Well, that wraps it up with Elliot Faber. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. And of course, we always have information in the show notes at japandistilled.com. And we hope you'll tell others about the show. Again, thank you very much for listening and kampai. <laughs>